listening to the Real Life Church Podcast. To learn more about Real Life Church, including our gathering times in Yuma, Arizona, visit us online at reallifeyuma.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Bob Van Horn. Hey everyone, welcome to Real Life Church. I'm Pastor Bob, and I'm glad you're with us today. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at this radical message called the Sermon on the Mount, given by one of the most radical teachers ever. His name was Jesus. We've been looking at the first part of this Sermon on the Mount called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes again remind us of our deep need for God's grace. If you remember, that first Beatitude reminds us that we need to come to God poor in spirit. The second one, we need to mourn over our personal sin. The third one, approach him meekly and in humility as if we were unworthy to approach God, but yet we are. And because of that, we're to pursue righteousness in every aspect of our life. This is a tough one for me personally. It's hard for me to teach lessons, especially what's an area that I know that I have struggled with and even continue to struggle with today. This beatitude, the teaching of Jesus and what he says, says this, blessed are those who are merciful for they shall obtain mercy. See, mercy has always been a struggle for me. Maybe it was my upbringing, maybe it's my military background, I'm not sure, but the gift of mercy have always been hard. One person once said, to behave most like God, we show mercy to those in need. So it's truly true. I have a lot further to go to be like God in my own walk. And I do have the courage to admit that. I have failed in this area many times over and over in my life becoming a disciple because I usually refrain from showing mercy to those who are in need. So even as I prepare this beatitude, my own heart needs to cry out to God for mercy even in my own self. For me, I have to go back and place all these beatitudes in which we've already looked at in place in my life to be able to show the mercy that God wants me to show other people. I have to realize that I am poor in spirit. I am bankrupt before God, and I needed mercy. I also need to mourn my sin. I need to confess my sin. I need to be gentle, and I need to become more like my Savior. So after kind of admitting all this to you, I feel a little bit more freedom to speak out what this beatitude says. I confess to you that I'm a work in progress, like we all are works in progress. So let's let Jesus examine all of us today. Let's let his Holy Spirit search in and through us. And if we want to be righteous men and women on earth, we're going to have to learn to be merciful to those who have need. So what is mercy? And really, it's one of those hard words to define without resorting back to the actual word. First of all, let me say this. Mercy is a condition of the heart. It's our heart that gets hardened towards some people, but mercy is what softens it. It melts your heart. 
It's again, seeing someone in need and being able to respond to that instead of becoming hard or callous. I want you to think about it. Mercy is considering that person's need, having compassion, and then doing something about it without getting flustered over their need or the inconvenience it causes you to have to help someone else in their good. Mercy is often defined in three different ways, emotionally, the mind, and the will. When we see someone in need, True mercy causes us to feel about it. And that's probably what I'm lacking. I don't feel for them. Maybe I should. Matter of fact, if I'm like Jesus, I ought to. We ought to think deeply about it, and then we ought to rise up and take action. Mercy is related to grace, but they're really two different things. Grace is the central idea of unmerited love. But the central area behind mercy is relieving that person of the misery that they're feeling. Mercy's particular response is helping those who are miserable, meeting the needs of the needy, and then grace, that deals with sin and guilt. Mercy deals with pain and misery often caused by sin and guilt. They work hand in hand, but they are two different things. If we're going to understand mercy, we really have to look to God. That's where mercy starts. Mercy is not a product of our world. Trust me. Mercy has its beginning, and it begins in the person and character of a holy God. I love Psalm 145 verse 9. It says that the Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all of his works. Now, in the New Testament, obviously, Jesus was the model of mercy. In Matthew 9, I want you to listen to this, he showed compassion towards people, and he took action and helped, and he fed them. Blind people would cry out to him to have mercy on them, and he would have compassion, and he would do something about it. Lepers, the most untouchable people fell before Jesus, and Jesus had compassion and did something about it. Widows who had lost their son, he had great compassion on them, and he did something about it. Do you see Jesus's pattern? He saw something, he had great compassion, and he did something about it. So what does it mean for you and I to be merciful? I think we've said it. We see something, we have compassion about it, and then we meet the need. We're moved to compassion and give up of ourselves to meet that need. The story of Jesus's telling of the Good Samaritan is the greatest example of mercy. I hope you and I would live up to that. When we're talking about having mercy, I'm not talking about a one-time feeling or a one-time helping out to make yourself feel better or myself feel better. The actual word in the Greek sentence structure of this actually means all the time. It's not some occasional or when you're made to feel guilty or you're driven by temporary charity. It's one who makes mercy a life habit. 
So one last question in this beatitude is it says, what does it mean to obtain mercy? Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. That's the uniqueness of this beatitude. Jesus is telling us that we have tasted of God's mercy. You and I, if we're standing here today as fellow believers, we've tasted of God's mercy, and therefore we're obligated to show mercy towards other people. And I will testify to that in later days, as I have learned to mature in my walk with Christ, I recognize the mercy that God has shown me, and it compels me to show mercy towards others. Three things. When you see someone who has need, show them compassion, and then do something, what you can do to help meet their need. And so when you meet that person that has a need and your spirit starts to close up a little bit, ask the Holy Spirit, why? Why am I turning a blind eye? Why don't I want to look at this person with mercy and compassion? Ask yourself that question. Second thing, you realize that God might put someone in your path so you can exhibit mercy to them like mercy has been exhibited to you? Thirdly, God will help you meet people's needs. He will bless you as you meet people's needs. The more mercy you exhibit, the more mercy he bestows upon you. Man, I think that covers that beatitude pretty clear. So let's just jump right on to the next one. And to stimulate our conversation today, let me ask you a series of questions. I want you to think about these questions and answer them real quick. When you're sitting around and you're relaxed and you're at leisure with your mind in neutral, where do your thoughts tend to naturally go? If you found a $1,000 bill on the sidewalk, what would your first impulse be to do with it? What celebrities do you most admire and what is it about them that you are inclined to or would want to imitate? In what ways are your manners towards certain people differ from your actual feelings towards them? If you have the opportunity to be released from any obligation you choose, what would you immediately want to stop doing? If you can be given a full day, in which you know no human would know or see anything about what you did, how differently would you plan that day from what you plan today? One final question. How did your answers hold up to this phrase that Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart? This parable talks about your heart condition before God. Now, I'm glad when Jesus said this, he didn't say, blessed are those who are pure, because we could probably do that. But what Jesus did, and he always does this, is he ratchets it up a little bit. He doesn't say, blessed are those who are pure by the things that they do or don't do, the rules and the regulations and stuff of that nature. Nope, that's not what Jesus said at all. What he said is, blessed are those who are pure in heart. And that changes this beatitude insurmountably. When we come to know Jesus, God looks at us as pure in heart. 
But just like righteousness and living righteously, and God sees us righteous because of what Jesus has done, we're commanded to be pure in heart. So what does that word heart mean? And for us, it's a different meaning in our Western culture than what Jesus was talking about. And it's easy to misunderstand. See, in our Western culture, we're used to thinking of the heart strictly as our emotions. When we're talking about the heart, and when Jesus speaks this, this not only is the deep seed of emotions and affections that are carried in the Bible, those emotions and affections and those feelings, they were the belly. In the Bible, when we're talking about heart, it was much, much more comprehensive than that. It was considered to be the seat of one's own soul. His whole life, physically, spiritually, mentally, morally, it was the whole package. And that's why in the Proverbs, you hear this over and over, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. In the Bible, when we're talking about heart, we're talking about everything. Today, when we say heart, we're talking about, man, that person's got heart. When we're talking emotion, but Jesus is talking about the entire being, the whole inner man and how it expresses itself. And this is why this parable is so important. This is the difference because Jesus was combating people that wanted to be religious And he's saying it's not that way anymore. It's now in the heart. It's everything. See, biblical faith and being religious is concerned primarily with the outward presentation, the outward aspect of a man's life. It focuses on the do's and the don'ts, and it expresses itself through ritual, ceremonial stuff, and holidays. It expresses itself through careful attention of eating certain foods and refraining from others. It expresses itself in what a person wears and what they don't wear and what they say and what they don't say. It focuses on the outward things of this world. Kind of might sound a little bit like the Pharisees back then who were very concerned about the outward appearance. But true biblical faith, Certainly does touch on some of those things, but that's not the primary focus. The primary focus of biblical faith is a transformed heart. The inner man being changed. Human religion does not change the inner man. It does not change his heart. Yet true faith in Christ That's a work of God's grace, and that's where God does. He transforms the heart. He changes the heart from the inside out. Huge difference. And this would have been shocking to those that were listening at the time. They were so used to people doing stuff to look good on the outside. Maybe that's true even today. And Jesus was teaching this beatitude that it was the inner heart that needed to be transformed and changed. And then the outward stuff would be a reflection of that heart. There's a passage in Samuel that talks about that, that it says that man always looks on the outward appearance. He does. You look at the outward appearance of stuff and you make a judgment. But it says that God looks at the inside because he realizes that's what's important. So is it possible? 
that we can look good on the outside and still be very corrupt on the inside? And that's exactly what Jesus was trying to say. And we do need to ask a question. What is the primary focus of your experience of being a Christian so far? Is it the outside or is it the inside? See, God wants to change your heart. He transforms people's heart, and then everything else changes. See, if God changes your heart, nothing is going to stop that outward change. We can manufacture the outside and still have a very, very corrupt heart. There's all kinds of verses that talk about the heart. The heart is desperately wicked. That's the heart unless God transform it. So understanding the heart in this passage is critically important. The word pure in heart. And the Greek word actually means to be understood in kind of three different ways. And I want to explain them really quickly. First, it refers to the heart as being morally clean and free of corruption, sin, and guilt. That's one way to understand a pure heart. And I like to think of that as the primary cleaning. A primary cleaning is when Jesus forgives you of your sin. When you ask him to be your savior, that's when you get that primary cleaning. And then there's what I also call a progressive cleaning. It's as we mature and as we walk in our relationship with God, after the primary, progressive cleaning continues on and on and on. And I think one of the best chapters in the Bible that talks about that is John chapter 15 where Jesus prunes things out of our life. He cleans up those things in our life that keeps us from bearing the most fruit that we can. And then there's this third one. It's called a perfect cleansing. And this is the one that you and I look forward to. We got primary, we got progressive, and now we have a perfect clean. You know, one day we are gonna stand before Jesus And if you know him as your savior, your heart is going to be made perfect. That means no more sin, (laughs) no more struggle. You're going to stand before him with a perfect heart. That's what we should striving for. And what does it say? Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, the only way to see God is to have a perfect heart. That's the only way we're gonna be able to see him in the future. Now, removing politics aside, if the president of the United States was to invite you to lunch, you would probably spend maybe a couple days getting ready for that. You might go out and shop, you might buy new clothes, you might get a haircut, you might shave. You're gonna do some preparation to meet the president of the United States. I got greater news for you. You may or may not ever meet the president of the United States, but you are going to meet God. And maybe we ought to spend our time here on earth preparing for that and for that glorious, if you want to call it, appointment that awaits for us. Will you stand before him with a clean heart? So let me go back to those questions that we started with. When you're sitting around relaxed and your mind is in neutral and you know that you were declared pure in God's sight by faith and are now destined to see Jesus and be conformed to his glorious image, 
in what sort of direction would your thoughts go? If you found that $1,000 bill laying on the sidewalk and you knew that you were declared pure in God's sight by faith and are now destined to see Jesus Christ and be conformed to his glorious image, what would your first impulse do with that money? If you knew that you were declared pure in God's sight by faith, and are now destined to see Jesus Christ and be conformed to his glorious image, what sort of people would you begin to admire? And what is it about them that you would be most inclined to imitate? Knowing that you've been declared pure in God's sight by faith and are now destined to see Jesus Christ and be conformed to his glorious image, how would you begin to view other people? And in what ways would your manners toward them compare to what you actually think about them. If you have the opportunity to be free from any obligation you choose and you knew that you were declared pure in God's sight by faith and are destined to see Jesus Christ and be conformed to his glorious image, what things would you immediately want to stop doing? If you were given a full day in which no human eye could see anything you did and you knew that you were declared pure in God's sight by faith, and now destined to see Jesus Christ and be conformed into his glorious image, how differently would you plan that day than the way you would plan that day right now? Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. Man, two beatitudes, they speak right to the heart, don't they? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you again for our time together. Thank you again for your word. Lord, thank you for this radical teaching that Jesus is giving us. Lord, it was so good for the disciples back then sitting in, a, in an area where he was speaking not only to them, but a huge crowd that was around him. But Lord, he's speaking to us today. Lord, help us. Help us to have mercy on those that have need. Help us to feel compassion and want to do whatever it is that we can do. And then, Lord, help us to live with pure hearts. Father, I thank you for that primary cleansing that happened a long time. And Father, I know that you're progressively cleansing me, my heart even today. And one day, Lord, you will perfect that heart when I stand before you. God, I can hardly wait. Lord, it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Next time we come back, we're going to look at a couple more of these Beatitudes. We're going to finish them up and keep on going. Until then, God bless you guys. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at reallifeyuma.com or download the Real Life Church app. And again, thanks for listening to the Real Life Church Podcast.